Gresham College presents Van Eyck's The Virgin with the Canon, Visual Disability and Societal Attitudes as Depicted in the Northern Renaissance by Mr Louis Clerkin. Around the edge of this painting is this inscription. Master George van der Pijler, canon of this church, has had this work made by the painter Jan van Eyck and he founded two chaplaincies to be served by the choir personnel. 1434. He completed it in 1436. Um, I always wondered why he commissioned a painting he could never have seen. As an ophthalmologist, it's obvious to me from this painting that van der Pijler is completely blind. Uh, This painting is the only reason we know of van der Pijler and we've had no other reason to discuss him today. This talk is a small step to understand why he commissioned Van Eyck, as well as the messages and allegories in the painting. These all would have been clear to those viewing the painting at the time it was painted, but are obscure to many of us today. Um, Only a few diseases cause complete blindness of the type that I think I'm going to convince you Van der Pijler suffered from. Uh, prominence is disease of the optic nerve and this is the back of the eye and the optic nerve swollen because the blood supply has been lost and this black area is where the dye of the angiogram fails to enter Uh, and this is temporal arthritis which is diagnosed histologically and you can see the way the swelling has made the hole in the middle of the artery down which the blood goes um, uh, almost close up This is a giant cell which gives the condition its other name, giant cell arthritis. In France, it's known as the Maladie de Horton, after Bayard Horton, who described this in 1932. And this is the dream of many doctors to discover a disease or recognise a disease that's been previously overlooked. Uh, He did it once, then he did it again for cluster headache. Um, William Bruce uh, described a related condition of polymyalgia rheumatica, which is a potentially crippling disease, which occurs very often along with temporal arthritis. Um, Temporal arthritis, if untreated, leads to severe immobility that interrupts daily living activities, movement so painful, patients simply stop moving, sufferers can't write, walk, feed themselves, dress themselves, or carry on the tasks of uh, daily living. Um, When somebody says this is a new disease, or or, or is credited for recognising a previously overlooked disease, two questions are prompted. How did they do that? Well, first of all, by complying with the duties of a doctor. They take the history, they listen to what a patient tells them, they explore that. Uh, They examine the patient and then they use those facts to produce a differential diagnosis. And that's the possibilities ranked in order of probability. Having done that, uh, doctors use tests to to determine the likely candidate. Um, Then Horton and Bruce had the self-confidence to say, this doesn't fit. I can't recognise this, this is something else. Uh, or something new. The second question is, so nobody noticed before? Well, in terms of these conditions, almost certainly they had. This is Jonathan Hutchinson, who describes 
a beadle at the, uh, oh, the father of a beadle at the London College, Rumbold, who had uh, his temple arteries, his streaks on his head prevented him wearing his hat. Uh, and then he noticed that these streaks were his temple arteries, which were inflamed, swollen, and then stopped pulsating. He goes on to say he lived several years without other arterial disease. Uh, this is from the memorandum book of Ali Ibn Issan, who was one of Islam's most famous ophthalmologists. In medieval Europe, he was known as Jesu Oculist. And this is recognised as a description from medieval times, of uh, again, of temporal arthritis. Um, people who've lost their vision are shown in paintings, and there's various uh, stylized uh, ways in which they are shown. Um, and this is one of the earliest examples. This is a bas-relief um, from the tomb of Atom M. Heb, and the harpist, um, everybody else is looking straight ahead. He's looking up and away, following the convention. And on his, there's a shadow over his ear, which is um, uh, prolonged forward in the distribution of his temporal artery. And, and uh, many physicians accept this as being temporal arteritis. Um, this is the uh, portrait of Guigliano and Francesco Giambierti. Uh, Giuliano, the son, was um, architect and master builder to the Medicis, and he com commissioned uh, Piero de Cosimo to paint him mourning the death of his father in 1480, so a little later than the Virgin and the Canon. Um, he's depressed and upset, and he's ignoring his tools, uh, but he's looking straight ahead. His father shows again this arterial um, uh, the temporal arteries are clearly visible. He's looking away from what he's interested in and he's looking up uh, to where there's no uh, real um, uh, thing of interest. Um, whoops. Uh, van der Peil, Joris van der Peiler, was the illegitimate son of Jan, born in Bruges in 1370 and he died there in 1443. Uh, the Council of Poitiers, some 300 years earlier, had put, a, had put a ceiling on his ambition because they prohibited the ordination of the illegitimate. Um, they also enforced other aspects of church discipline, including, for the first time, celibacy. But Van der Peil is no priest. He's not, uh, he's not uh, uh, required to be celibate. When he was 17 years old, uh, Pope Urban appointed him canon, which is a secular scribe of St. Donatian's, the cathedral in Bruges. His uncle was uh, a scribe there, as was his brother, but he was later dismissed because he was loyal to Rome during the schism and he lost prebend incomes. Um, he subsequently gained other prebend incomes, and these are incomes from parishes where he was never actually um, uh, resident or worked. In 1396, he went to Rome as a scripter and had a very interesting career that we know very little about. He worked as a diplomat, an envoy, and a spy, and in 1410, he was reappointed to St. Donatian. This through the anti-pope John XXIII, and Pope John the or anti-Pope John the Twenty-Third was described as utterly worldly-minded, mind, worldly 
ambitious, crafty, unscrupulous and immoral. A good soldier, but no churchman. And many feel this would apply to van der Pyler. Uh, Pope Martin V, who was the next pope to be recognised as pope by everybody, um, made him leave Rome in 1418 and return to Bruges. Um, the canon was spectacles. And this is one of the first pictures ever that depicts somebody and their glasses. Uh, but he's no use to them. He's discarding them. Um, he's, he's at his breviary, but he's looking away from it. He can't see it. He's following the convention of looking up and away. And we can see very clearly his temporal arteries and also the lack of blood supply in his scalp, causing him to lose hair from in front of his ear and his bald to behind his ear. Um, the way he holds his breviary is in this sort of claw of a hand. And it strikes me that this is because it would be difficult or painful for him to hold his hand in any other way. And when we look at the three together, there is a similarity that I think is unmistakable and convincing. Van der Pale's 64 now, when his illness started, he was almost certainly blind in my view, completely blind, with clinically abnormal temporal arteries. He was suffered a documented illness and was unwell in the morning. His disability was sufficient to require official intervention and support, and he lived until he was 73 at a time when life expectancy, certainly in the UK, uh, was 31. Um, faced with dreadful um, physical health, he would have suffered psychologically. And he's shown as having the, what's known as the full sadness expression. There isn't a further expression um, that this chap um, uh, uh, describes. Uh, but for, he also follows the convention of looking up and away because he's completely blind. In the Middle Ages, there's a tension between God's law and the church and man-made laws and the state. And very much the the, in the medieval period, the church predominated. The aim of life was solely for salvation, and it's key to the conformity of thinking in the medieval period. And this is the deliverance by God's grace from bondage, sin and condemnation and the transference to the kingdom of heaven with eternal light and the sight of God. A chain of being, dividely ordered, place and function was accepted. Any disturbance could only be due to sin. Uh, the book of Leviticus in the Old Testament says, Thou shalt not curse a deaf man, nor put a stumbling block before the blind, but thou shalt fear thy God. By medieval times, the blind were considered deceitful, and blindness was held to be the punishment from sin. Examples of this belief are widespread. Medieval beggars would shout, I can't see a thing, but this is literally incorrect for nine out of ten of them. And this may explain, this residual vision that people have, may explain why those claiming to be blind were felt to deliberately mislead for gain. Uh, the oldest surviving French farce is The Boy and the Blind Man. The man 
is wealthy and dissolute. His income from begging exceeds what he could make from honest toil. He is dependent on the boy to guide and help him. But the boy sees no reason to behave honestly and covertly abuses him, disguising his voice before beating him and stealing his gold and eventually all of his possessions. Um, This 13th century roundel shows the miracle of St. Martin about to cure the lame man and the blind man. And they've formed a symbiotic relationship where the lame man can't walk but directs the blind man who can. Um, there's the lame man holds the purse, but he's thin, poorly clothed. The blind man, despite walking with another man on his shoulders, is, is obese and, 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 um, and well-clothed. And it's um, the subject of many, evil, many medieval stories and plays. The lame man abuses the blind man, despite his dependence upon him. In another play, he appears after the crucifixion and represents the figurative and literal blindness of the Jews. In others, this meeting's a mistake. They'd actually be trying to avoid St. Martin uh, for fear of being cured and therefore losing their livelihood from begging. Um, This is from the Romance of Alexander in the Bodleian, and it shows the game of the pig. And in the game of the pig, blind participants are humiliated by injuring each other for the general amusement. This account is from the Journal of a Bourgeois de Paris. The Saturday before the Sunday, four blind people were led behind a banner of a pig and a man playing a bass drum. On the Sunday, they were each armed with a stick and put in a park. There was a strong pig that they could have had if they killed it. A strange battle ensued because they gave each other a great many blows with the stick when they believed they'd hit the pig. Uh, But they hit each other, and had they been armed, they would have killed each other. Uh, The Fourth Lateran Council quoted John when Jesus healed and then said, go and sin no more. And as part of regularizing confessions, they said, when physicians are called to the bedside of the sick, before all else, call for physicians of the soul. So after spiritual health is restored, bodily medicine may be of greater benefit. For the cause being removed, the effect will pass away. Um, following the Synod of Paris from the, from the 12th century onwards in the Middle Ages, the laity took communion only by sight, not by ingestion. And this is the Elevatio, where all can see the consecrated bread raised and then view the body of Christ. The blind are clearly excluded. They can't see it and are marginalised. If they can see any part of it, clearly they're deceitful because they can't be blind. Uh, St. Augustine said that those that see the host will have sufficient meat and drink. Their idle oaths will be forgiven. They will not die suddenly. They will not go blind. Uh, there, are me- there are mentions of the joy on being able to see the Elevatio again following cataract surgery. And there are accounts of those made temporarily blind at the moment of the elevation because they had sinned and had not yet confessed. Um, This is a slide from Les Costumes de Toulouse in the Bibliothèque Nationale. It shows 
judicial blinding in 13th century France. And this is the deprivation of moral sight by the state removing one of God's gifts. The magistrate, uh, red hood and blue uh, gown, is blinding a man using a red-hot poker. Uh, St. Thomas of Becket discussed the appropriate punishment for law-breaking clerics with Henry II. The punishment should be initially by canon law, defrocking. For subsequent law-breaking, the king's law would apply, blinding, flaying or hanging according to the king's will. Uh, Chaucer is particularly helpful, and this is the merchant's tale, which combines many elements that relate to the canon and virgin painting. Pilgrimage, Bruges was a pilgrim, port, avarice, and sexual shenanigans amongst the retirement. Uh, January, whoops, uh, January is a retired Lombardy knight, and Lombards were both Christians and moneylenders, hoped May his younger accommodating wife was to become his earthly paradise and he believed a man could do nothing sinful with his wife. He built this garden to facilitate their sexual congress but was blinded by fortune. At the moment, his wife is penetrated by Damien who's, hanging, who's hiding up the tree and Gan pulling up the smock and in he throng. January's sight is miraculously restored and he's able to see this infidelity um, but then takes solace in denial and May successfully convinces him that his eyesight's deceiving him because it's been lost and only just been brought back. He doesn't know what's going on. She's just struggling with this man uh, in an attempt to win his sight back. Um, Sexual license was a feature of pilgrimage. St. Boniface wrote to Archbishop Cuthbert in 1750 that there was scarcely a city in Lombardy or in Gaul where you could not find several of these English pilgrims turned prostitute. Uh, The church was pragmatic. Augustine of Hippo, if you expel prostitution from society, you will unsettle everything on account of lust. St. Thomas Aquinas talked of the sewer in the palace, Remove the sewer and the palace will fill with corruption. Um, Others put these thoughts into action. Uh, In 1309, Bishop Johann of Strasbourg built a new brothel for the city as an investment. Um, Nearby here in 1161, Henry II signed into law his ordinances touching the government of the stewholders in Southwark under the direction of the Bishop of Winchester. So the Bishop of Winchester was in charge of prostitution south of the Thames at that time. And this is a stew. Uh, It's a bathhouse, stroke brothel, and this is in an illuminated manuscript that an illegitimate son of Philip the Good commissioned. Likely it's a stew in Bruges. Uh, The musician plays the lute, the dog barks, there's dancing, veiled women... Uh, everybody's naked, and the interested parties, the magistrate, the red hat, the blue gown, and the king look on. Um, Fornication was sinful, but openly tolerated in Flanders in the medieval time. In nearby Ghent, so much so, there was no need for prostitution or brothels. Uh, Not so in Bruges. I accept this is a little later 
but there were brothels recognised throughout the city. And for a population a sixth of the size of Paris at that time, it had the same many uh, brothels. Um, And it gives an indication of a flourishing trade. Uh, The relevant law of committed evil was directed at the owner of the property rather than at the client or service provider. And Bruges was notorious for prostitution in medieval times. Uh, The authorities never tried to control the trade, as in other European cities. There was no red light area. Um, There were no rules on clothing to distinguish prostitutes. Uh, Within St. Donatian's parish, interestingly, there are no brothels, nor are there any records of court fines levied in the late 1300s, early 1400s. Uh, Bruges was the cradle of capitalism. It had a stock exchange, a robust city of uh, non-coin monetary exchange, and women, both married and single, could borrow money, own property, and run a business. Many of the court documents uh, for for prostitution cases name women as owners or in charge of brothels. It was a port that that, uh, pilgrims used, and there were resident foreign merchants with large populations of unmarried men with money. Women, I understand, outnumbered men in the late 1300s Bruges. Single women moved in from the countryside to work as servants in the cloth trade, as well as in uh, beguinages. And this is a beguinage, and um, it was where women could, who were not in holy orders could go and live uh, a contemplative life. Um, All of these activities were recruiting grounds for prostitutes. Court records indicate that the inmates of beginages and also nunneries caused fines for prostitution. There was uh, institutions to reform prostitutes within nunneries, uh, and they were known as the Fille de Dieu. Uh, Aged 50, uh, Van der Pyler retires from Rome and returns as canon to the Cathedral of St. Donatian in Bruges' native city. He's wealthy. The cathedral gives him a stipend. He retains his previous prebends. He is lay and owns a fine house on the Malienberg Platz, the road next to the cathedral. From 1420 onwards, he's described as master of the matins, the nighttime ritual ending at dawn. Uh, master implies academic qualification, but uh, there's no record he attended university. There's no record he had any musical ability whatsoever. Uh, it's not really clear what he did for the next 11 years. There's good reason to think his illness began in 1431. Uh, the St. Donatian actor Capituli on the 13th of November of that year record that he should be paid even though he doesn't attend any service. Uh, On the 9th of September, 1434, because of his feebleness and old age, he should be put down for all payments, whether he comes to church or not. In July, 1437, again, they speak of an uh, the records speak of an ongoing illness. That illness, temporal arthritis and polymyalgia rheumatica, will have started 
and within a very short time rendered him completely blind and completely immobile. In Bruges at that time, this can only have been seen as the reward for avarice or fornication in a city renowned for commerce and prostitution. It's likely he would try to have had his vision restored. Even today, this is not possible in that condition. Um, Cures were mainly by miracle. John of Wormuth was blinded for working on a Sunday, but his sight restored following pilgrimage to the tomb of Godric. Godric also cured a blind man and a woman who'd never seen her children. Mary Magdalene, um, uh, Jesus' favourite whore, restored the sight to a man who misused the light of the feast day when he visited her shrine. She cured a blind girl when her mother prayed, but when the mother doesn't go on a pilgrimage to her, to her um, uh, she re-blinds her. Uh, medieval texts are not optimistic about reversing blindness other than by cataract surgery. Um, the, the remedies include salves of swallow's blood, and this is a swallow blinding St. Tobias. Uh, another remedy was the mo- uh, milk from a mother that was destined from a male child, um, squirted into the eye of um, somebody who was blind. Uh, we've mentioned the psychological blow, not just from the illness, but the implications of the illness. And everybody would know. Um, Van Van Eyck has painted the picture of misery. And it's very likely, in my view, that um, Van der Pyler would have a grief reaction that would last between two to five years in a fairly circumscribed way. And three years, two to three years after the start of the grief reaction, he, in my view, engages in desperate bargaining. And this is to have his sight restored and to escape eternal damnation. To do this under Catholic rites, he must freely confess his sins. He's painted on his knees before Mary and Jesus. He accepts what he's done, he expresses regret, makes restitution, and he advances other arguments. And this is all painted by Van Eyck. Now, Van Eyck uh, was a Flemish painter and the founder of the Flemish primitives. Um, the interesting thing what's, that singles him out is his mastery of oil paint on wood. He was an educated, free-thinking man, an envoy, probably a spy, quite the prankster. Uh, all's Ike can. Um, and this is the man in the red chaperon. Realism, but with surrealistic qualities. His patron at this time was Philip the Good, um, who ruled Bruges. Um, he was, he was um, uh, Philip's envoy to Portugal um, and painted his future wife, Isabella. Uh, when the marriage, which Van Eyck may well have um, helped negotiate, Uh, was celebrated, this was by the um, founding of the Order of the Golden Fleece. Most European monarchs, including Queen Elizabeth II of England, uh, were members. This order was based in St. Donatian's Cathedral. Uh, Van Eyck was commissioned by many wealthy people with links with Philip's. Uh, Philip the Good spent 2% of Burgundy's tax income 
with the Italian cloth merchant Giovanni Arnolfini for silk and cloth of gold. Um, this painting is laden with symbolism, um, probably the husband mourning his dead wife, the image again from a death mask. Uh, Van Eyck, postmodern before there's modern, breaks down the fourth wall with his own reflection in the mirror uh, and graffiti. Jan Van Eyck was here. Uh, Nicholas Rollin was um, Philip's chancellor and he's shown in what's known as a sacred conversation. Um, this again was a commission that had been a written contract um, and part of that is all seem equal. He's on a level with uh, Jesus, he's more or less on a level with Mary. Um, he's painted in the most expensive clothing uh, with a view as far out to his lands as far as the eye can see and again a man in a red chaperon. Um, X-ray studies show a huge purse on his hip that was painted out by Van Eyck, probably at Rollins' request. Uh, Van der Pyler's uh, conversation is on another sort. Uh, the setting is cramped. When you stand in front of the picture, you seem as though you're in it. Uh, everything seems real. Um, there's a perspex sheet uh, in front of the whole painting and you can see finger marks where people tried to touch the carpet, uh, myself included. Um, if you stand on the left of the carpet or the right of the carpet, there's an illusion that makes the carpet still uh, point towards you and draw you into the centre. Uh, we see the windows, but we can't see anything of the world outside. Uh, Van der Pyler would never have seen this painting, and Van Eyck could have painted what he wanted to, had he been of a medieval mind site. He could have set out to make Van der Pyler look foolish, to expose his sins. I think he set out to help him. Mary speaks first through the parrot who says, Ave. This is what parrots were thought to say in medieval times. Hail. Uh, these, whoops, these are carnations known as nail flowers because they re uh, uh, resemble the serrated edge of a medieval nail. The white flowers are mustard. The Latin name is cruciferi. Jesus looks careworn and old beyond his years. He's hearing a familiar tale, knowing his own suffering has yet to come. Uh, St. George looks apprehensive, doffs his hat and replies, Adonai, majesties. His gesture is, please let me introduce. He's got a foot on Van, I uh, on Van der Pyler's surplice, so if Van der Pyler wants to get up, he won't be able to. Um, George is one of the 14 holy helpers, an idea after the great plague. Saints venerated in Catholicism because their intercession is believed to be effective in obtaining relief from disease. Um, Van Eyck had said Adonai before, and this is the Ghent altarpiece, and even though I looked, I couldn't find it, and there is Agla. Uh, which is an acronym that means the Lord is mighty forever. We know Van Eyck was advised by a priest on the correct biblical symbolism uh, for this painting. And the unusual circumstances have raised suspicions that Hubert Van Eyck changed his name to Jan 
when he was inducted into an underground society. At that time, the popes, the anti-popes, the clerical avarice, the fornication caused disenchantment in the Roman Catholic Church, Luther's proclamation being one of the end points. Uh, George was in the guard of the Roman emperor Diocletian. He was a Christian of the utmost probity and he would not offer sacrifice to pagan gods even to save his own life. Initially, he was offered inducements to sacrifice, uh, land, money and slaves, but he just gave his money away. Michel von Coxey shows his torture on a wheel of swords. He died and was revived three times. Eventually, he was decapitated. Uh, Catholics who have sinned and wish reconciliation with God do so via confession to have their sins absolved. Um, Van der Pyler acknowledges his sins which involve avarice and sex. He accepts that he's blind through God's mercy. He can't see the holy book. His spectacles are of no use to him. His impressive purse is uh, clearly seen in contrast to Rollin, who discreetly had his painted out. And this phallic item hangs in an anatomically convincing way. Nearest to him is Eve. The serpent did beguile me and I did, eat. The, I did eat. The woman gains knowledge and then tempts the man. Van der Pyler may be saying, I am what you made me. This is how men are. Above is Samson, and it's the herb that gives it away. Uh, he was to serve God by destroying the Philistines and give them the strength to do so. After dismembering the lion, he, go, he goes away, gets married, but his Philistine wife makes a joke about him and he gives it to one of his friends. Later, he stays with the harlot in Gaza. He falls in love with Delilah, who's not identified in the Bible as a harlot, but for money, she'll discover his strength and betray him. Rembrandt paints her with the shears and the hair exiting as Samson is blinded. He later fulfilled his destiny by bringing the temple down on the Philistines. Now, one would think this would guarantee salvation for Samson, but um, because he died before the coming of Christ, the matter is yet to be decided. Um, on the day of judgment, he will, he will rise up and have the opportunity to learn about the good news, to accept God's love and mercy. And despite the sins that merited blinding, um, he can still go to heaven. Um, Van der Pyler may be saying, if not if him, why not me? Um, on the other side of the throne is Adam. The woman thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I did eat again, might be pointing out that you really have to accept some share of the blame, God, uh, for all of this. Above Adam are his twin sons, and this is Cain in the act of killing Abel. Now, God cursed Cain for murdering his brother. Should Cain attempt to farm the land, the earth would not yield produce for him. Cain, uniquely in the Bible, is described as a fugitive and a wanderer. Eventually, Cain said unto the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Van der Pyler may well be making the same point, And with a lot of justification, he's completely blind, he's immobile, and he now has survived the first few years and is coming to terms with long years ahead of him. 
God puts his mark on Cain in order to warn others that killing Cain would provoke the wrath of God. Uh, This is where it gets interesting. Um, Atop the pillars are Old Testament carvings. Now, the Groningen's Museum put their logo on all this, so you'll have to uh, bear with me. This is Bera, king of Sodom. We'll put that to one side. This is Abraham in the act of killing Isaac. Bob Dylan explains it quite well. Oh, God said to Abraham, kill me a son. Abe says, man, you must be putting me on. And he was, and they both knew it, and they both went along with it. And these two powerful beings clashed in a way that really did neither of them any credit. And the innocent suffered. The angel, who I think is Archangel Michael, um, stops, puts a stop to the matter and is so moved he cries and his tears enter Isaac's eyes. In later life, this was held to explain why Isaac went blind. Van der Pilar may be drawing a parallel with his own situation, perhaps. Blinded because he's caught in the middle of a clash between the powerful. Abraham had many sexual partners. We know of eight sons with three women. First with Hagar, the Egyptian handmaiden of his uh, barren wife or sister, Sarah. In this painting, with Sarah's help, he's preparing to go unto Hagar. Uh, Later with Sarah arrives Isaac, and that's when he's 100 and she's 90. Six more then with Keterah after Sarah had died. Van der Poel may be emphasising an earlier point. Promiscuity, it's how men are. Abraham defeats the Elamites in the Battle of the Vale of Siddim and meets Melchizedek, who um, gives bread and wine and gives him 10% of the plunder. He also met Bera, we saw him earlier. He's the king of Sodom and he also offered plunder to Abraham, but Abraham refused with these words. I swore I had never take anything from you, so you can never say I have made Abraham rich. So riches accepted from a ruler considered righteous, but refused from the ruler of a town notorious for its toleration of shocking sexual license. Again, Van der Poel may be drawing a parallel. Events unfold further. Uh, After the battle, God and two angels appear as men, visit and eat with Abraham. Abraham confirms God's understanding of the situation of Sodom, then debates statistics with God in order to save Sodom from destruction. God sends his angel to visit Abraham's nephew Lot, who had moved Sodom in order that he too could engage in licentious sexual behaviour. As they visit, a crowd of would-be sexual partners for the angels gather, and in quick succession, Lot offers his two virgin daughters instead, and that's declined. The visitors are struck blind temporarily to prevent the sin, And then the angels fail to find the righteous man, and this must include Lot, uh, that would mean Sodom that would be saved. Uh, On the right, uh, Guerrieri shows the forewarned Lot 
preparing to leave Sodom. His, shoulder, his shoulders slumped, possibly reflecting on his offer earlier. Men of that time ought to be prepared to risk death to defend their daughter's honour. His daughters, um, two of his four daughters, were betrothed but seem a little bit put out from their expressions and their, de- their very lacy decolletage suggests they'd anticipated some other outcome for the, uh, 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 the day. Um, Sodom is destroyed with fire and brimstone, along with Lot's two other daughters and their husbands. Lot's wife looks back, and the remaining three uh, flee to the mountains. Genesis takes up the story. And the firstborn said unto the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on the earth to come in unto us after a manner of all of the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine and let us lie with him that we may preserve our family through our father. Um, The elder daughter on the first night, uh, the younger on the second, uh, Lucas van Leiden shows a drunken lot seducing his daughter. Uh, The other daughter's getting them in a refill. Um, Lot's daughters engaging in sexual intercourse with him was Lot's punishment. The events became public knowledge, and there's a reading of this every year from the Torah. We, we can't really assume that van der Pyler had the same understanding of these events that we had. There's been a lot of scholarship in the uh, ensuing years. The details are key, but van der Pyler may well be saying, and with some justification, look, it's just not fair. Judgment of sexual sin is inconsistent, context-specific, dependent on the identity of the sinner and spurious to subject justification. Lot's daughters deserve to be burned for having sex with their father. But God, who knows man's thoughts, judged them by their thoughts and not their deeds. His conclusion that the daughter's true intent was not to fornicate with their father but to save the world from total devastation was the outcome they were spurred, despite having passed several and avoided several towns on the way. Um, If this is his allegory and if this is his point, it must prompt speculation on just what had van der Pyler gotten himself involved in and on whose authority. Um, Above St. Donatian of the Camels, Camel and the Eye of the Needle, um, and St. Donatian in, in, uh, um, uh, invites consideration of the penance, what van der Pyler has done to make things better, the return of stolen goods, the paying for damage that's done. Um, St. Donatian's very heavy-duty saint, a martyr, who's the cause of his unbaptized brother's martyrdom, the night before they were killed he said to his brother don't worry they'll get me first I'll bleed all over you and we'll use the blood to baptize you Um, uh, uh, St. Donatian demonstrates what's been given in reparation the golden jewel cross his um, his clothes particularly the cape which is painted Um, embroidered in gold cloth with the 12 apostles. Now, these bequests were approved at the very highest level of the church. In 1438, Pope Eugenius IV, in a papal bull, 
said Van der Pyler hoped to exchange terrestrial, terrestrial and temporal goods for celestial and eternal ones in order to secure salvation. That Van der Pyler could give that much away and retain his fine house in the centre of town and then commission Van Eyck says something of his wealth. Uh, Saint Donatian looks angry uh, for being conjured up. And from his line of sight, <clears throat> I don't think he's looking at St. George or Van der Pyler, but he's looking at Van Eyck reflected in St. George's shield. To sum up, Van der Pyler is made suddenly blind and crippled. In the 1400s, this could only have been seen as a deserved punishment for sins of avarice or fornication. He fears damnation and seeks salvation through confession and absolution. The painting sets out his confession, his grief, his reparation and his case in mitigation. Uh, Van Eyck died uh, young at 51 in 1441 and preceded Van der Pyler, who is, uh, is often the case with temple arthritis, lived a long time and died aged 73 a year later. Philip the Good died sometime later, 1457, and all were buried in the crypt of St. Donatian, which was destroyed by the French in 1799. It's now in the basement of the Crown Plaza Hotel. Um, it's not at all clear where any of the three main protagonist mortal remains are. Um, there is no blessing in the picture. There's no absolution shown in the picture. And it's really not known if Van der Pyler's bargain was successful and if he was absolved. It may be that only Van Eyck was prepared to make this minor church functionary immortal. Thank you.